for the listener, I want to give you a, a point in time. At this very moment, there are billions of transactions, financial transactions that are occurring globally. People are sending peer-to-peer payments. They're using Venmo. They're using PayPal. People are paying their credit card bills. People are um, uh, depositing cash. Businesses are engaged in transactions through and through. Banks are um, providing overnight funds to other banks. The number of transactions that's out there is as close to infinite as you could imagine. The rub is that within the global anti-money laundering space, there's a requirement to actually surveil, to watch those transactions, to see are they operating in a way that is, that is legal and permissible. And if not, an identification mechanism in order to alert the particular government of potentially suspicious activity. It is, for all intents and purposes, trying to find a needle in a massive global haystack. And so you've got all these vendors out there within the United States, globally, that are assisting businesses do this rather onerous, monumental task of trying to find potentially suspicious activity that would then lead to them to file these suspicious activity reports. And these are some regulatory requirements, which Zila will get into. But you have companies like Prime, uh, Mantis, that's run by Oracle, Actimize, that's run by Nice. Uh, out of uh, India, I know a, a good friend who's running a company called Jokata. And so that's the kind of the big picture. I'm giving you the haystack. And so Zila, you know, what's, the, what's a little bit of the, the regulatory tie-in to this? Yeah, so in the United States, just some key terms to think of what you've mentioned is transaction monitoring you know you are they financial institutions have an obligation to report on suspicious activity there's a legal standard there we won't get into Uh, the legal nerds out there i'm sure maybe we'll have an episode on specifically when you have to file a suspicious activity report or a SAR in order to know and identify when you have to file a suspicious activity report, you have to do transaction monitoring. And where do those kind of obligations come out of? I'm sure we beat it to death at this point, but this concept of the five pillars of an AML program. One of the pillars is internal controls. And one of the ways in which you have to have internal controls is transaction monitoring to ensure that your customers are not engaging in suspicious or illicit activity, that that activity is not flowing through by at or through your financial institution. Um, That comes from FinCEN regulation, that comes from in New York, part 504 has very specific transaction monitoring obligations. Out of the EU, we have the fourth directive. Um, I know you were mentioning um, another regulation coming out of Israel, um, Paul, but there, there are quite a few regulations out there with respect to identifying and reporting suspicious activity and that therefore require you to actually engage in transaction monitoring. I actually think part 504 out of New York is one of the very few regulations that gives you much more details as to how you need to do that transaction monitoring. Um, generally the obligations and the legal obligations are around what type of activity you have to report and how quickly. Um, But again, these are legal obligations that 
are very burdensome. They're very difficult to comply with. Um, and the legal standard in the United States, which is worth knowing is um, whether you suspect or have reason to suspect of some type of suspicious activity. That's a pretty, pretty broad standard. And um, once these kind of alerts are generated, which I think we've mentioned in the past, the alerts on transaction monitoring look a lot like fraud alerts you get on your phone when you, you know, if I spend $5,000 at Home Depot, Citibank is gonna say that doesn't sound like you, Zila. Um, so kind of those are, those are the types of alerts we're talking about and figuring out what's a false positive and what isn't is actually really, really difficult. Um, so we have two amazing guests today and Paul, maybe you could tell us a bit about them. Josh, yeah, Joe, you know, the company is uh, out of Singapore. It's uh, Tukataki. Um, they, I've known them for about a year. Joe Frisha uh, is one of their uh, chief revenue officers. He, he actually was the uh, CEO and president of Actimize, one of the kind of the industry leaders in um, transactional surveillance. So he's, he's been with them for uh, about a year or two. And Abhishek Chatterjee is the CEO and founder. This is, this is a group that has, uh, within Singapore, um, they were award winners in the Reg Asia 2020. They were uh, uh, finalists with the, the Singapore FinTech Festival. And for, for the listener, this is not your everyday discussion for the practitioner, your everyday discussion on false positives. Uh, what they'll do is they'll do a couple of things. First off, they'll lay out what's this problem. They'll explain in better detail what the haystack is that, that we are kind of working ourselves through, uh, what we should be doing in trying to find that potentially suspicious activity, what's, what's what we call a, a, an actual alert as opposed to a false positive. And then what Tukataki can do or what machine learning can do in particular to help existing technologies become better. And this for me is the, the takeaway from this session or this, this, uh, this discussion with the crew is machine learning. And how do you bridge the gap between the, the investigators that are performing the reviews to let the technology perform and, and learn and adapt better? So at the end of the day, you've got two things. First off, you're able to identify the potentially suspicious activity uh, quicker which hopefully leads to being able to get in front of the criminal actor uh, executing uh, his, her, its own agenda quicker, and also making the exponential expenses, the bank expenses, the, the financial services expenses right now being spent to uh, 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 solve this problem. Uh, the AML Act of 2020, this just came out in January, it, it, it's up the game. The penalties are higher, the, 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 the risks are higher, the expectations are higher. So uh, we hope you enjoy this session with Joe Frisha and Abhishek. And we really just get into it with this question here by me to Joe. So uh, enjoy. But Joe, if you could lay out a little bit of you know, what the longstanding problem has been with transaction monitoring and actually getting to those SARS, and kind of the morass that we have to uh, fight through and slog through and actually getting to what that true signal is. Gotcha. Okay. So as you pointed out, uh, what's supposed to happen does, but there is a reality on what is going on. So I'll try to kind of lay that out. So first of all, let's just separate 
I'm focusing on the operations. There are folks uh, like chief risk officers who identify risk policies and thresholds of risk. That's more strategy. Once that's in place for any financial institution, then the operation kicks in. And the operation, if you look at AML, very simply breaks down to two halves or two parts of a loaf of bread. The first half is the detection. It's to trying to identify that anomalous behavior. And frankly, no one sees that except it fires off alerts. So the details of what it's looking for, et cetera, are not really seen by people. What they do see is things we call red flags or alerts. So when they come in in the morning, they'll sign on to a system and they will see a list of quote alerts. And then their job is to research those to identify whether that, as you said, is really anomalous behavior or it's really okay behavior. And then if it is anomalous, they go through a process of submitting a SAR or suspicious activity report to the, to the government. So the problem we have, and I can speak firsthand because I've been in this business well over 15 years, is that the detection technology is very dated. And what it's like is if you, you were a fisherman, you throw a net in the ocean and you're looking for certain types of fish, but you throw a net, you're gonna get a boatload of fish, but not everyone is the one you want. That's because the process is pretty rudimentary. You're just collecting based on some general rules. And then what happens, because it's a requirement to have money laundering monitoring, uh, anti-money laundering monitoring, you have an obligation to investigate everything that's alerted. You can't just ignore it. And therein lies the problem. Because you know the hidden secret is you can adjust thresholds. You can say, you know, it, this particular threshold I set, whether it's X, is generating way too much activity for me. So maybe I'll ratchet it down and get half the activity. But the problem, of course, is you might be missing some true anomalous behavior. So you cannot do that. So the real outcome of this whole thing is that every bank is inundated with alerts. And to the degree about 95 to 99% of all these alerts that get generated are false positives. Let me, so, let me paint it. Yep. Let me, let me paint a picture of what we, of the problem that we deal with. And when I say we, I'm, I'm using the, the general way you take a thermometer and we've got that line, anything above say 72 degrees from an alert standpoint, that would be our demarcation line. So our transaction monitoring system uh, finds everything, whether it's from zero degrees to hundred degrees. Anything below 72 degrees, it does its auto close, right? right? And then anything above 72 degrees, okay, it's of a hot enough temperature that we want our FIU, our financial intelligence unit to look at it. But the problem that we have, and what you just said was the thresholds. Sometimes we'll get through six months to a year and we'll say, let's test it down to say 68 degrees, meaning anything above 68 will then have the, 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 the human element review. And then maybe a few years later, we'll ratchet it up to 74. And, and the problem, the pain point for us is constantly that calibration to try and find that, that, that sweet spot. But it almost feels like, and maybe this is for you or Zila, that the, the sweet spots almost like this um, <laughs> uh, always eluding, threshold that maybe maybe just doesn't exist in the current state that we're in. Yeah, and let me comment because I think this links to everything that uh, we're talking about is 
the threshold is a very tricky thing, as you point out, because if you go too high, the real issue is what am I missing? And the impact on a business is if you do miss something and you become aware of it, there's something called a look back. You will be required to go back over possibly years of activity, which is a huge expense in time, and find out what you've missed and then go through the process. So, you know, the to be the cautious, you, you kind of broaden the net. So you do capture as much as you can, just in the hopes you're not missing anything. But the real impact here is this is a business. And to address and work those alerts, you need people. And if you look at what's happened over the last 10 years in most of the major financial institutions, especially in the US, their staff to investigate alerts has nearly tripled. Mm -hmm. And Jamie Dimon has gone on record many times saying, you know, I know we have to do this, but I am gonna focus on technology to be able to comply with a whole lot less people. Because let's face it, this doesn't generate revenue. This is compliance. You are required to do it. So it, therein lies the kind of the rub. You have to do it, but you don't want to do necessarily more than you have to, but you have to comply. And this is where, and I think we're on the verge of some very, very interesting stuff, is it's time for some new technology to address the thresholding issue. Is Instead of trying to just detect anomalous behavior, it's time to identify it so you get what you want and you avoid the things you don't want. And one thing worth noting, Joe and Paul, is this idea of adjusting your threshold isn't without risk because every time you adjust a threshold and like Joe said, maybe you miss something, a regulator has the opportunity to come in and criticize you and say, did you really, should you really have raised that threshold or should you have lowered that threshold? And why did you do it at that time? And did you do it like Joe said to just minimize the number of alerts because you lost three staff members? You know, like there's all types of criticisms that can come in. And I think many institutions are probably more hesitant to adjust their thresholds and adjust their transaction monitorings for fear of criticism. When in reality, as Joe says, there are huge problems that do need to be addressed and innovation would actually benefit them greatly. I think regulators have tried but haven't done a great job at incentivizing institutions to innovate here. Yeah, and maybe it's a little more color on the criticism. And again, I keep reinforcing because it's important. This is still a business. Banks are in business to make money. And the real risk here of the criticism is that it translates into a fine. And then there's some public recognition that you as a financial institution haven't followed the proper guidance or controls. And that, that's not so much the actual dollar amount, it's the reputational risk and loss you have. So no one wants to bank with someone who thinks they're supporting money laundering. So there's a lot of complexities around this process, which is hence why everybody is opening the net up, but the costs are very, very high. So this is, you know, it's, it's a confluence of so many things coming together with additional regulatory pressure, the risk of fines, reputational loss, and the inefficiency of the operation. The only way to solve this problem is technology. And the good thing about it is, you know, we all talk about machine learning. Machine learning is taking over our lives. It's driving our cars. It's doing everything. It's how do you apply it to this particular problem? and, and eliminate all those false positives without losing the true positives. You mentioned, Joe, that you said something like 95 to 99% of alerts end up being false positive. 
and that the staffing up of these kind of compliance departments has just gone through the roof. Have you seen an increase in outsourcing of some of this? Because I've seen more interest recently where folks say, you know, we can't have a hundred people in-house <laughs> reviewing alerts. We have to figure out a better way. Yeah, uh, the short answer is absolutely. But in my view, that's a, they're treating the symptom, not the root cause. Because what banks are finding is, okay, I've got an enormous overhead now. If I can outsource this to some location or group that could do it far cheaper than I can, absolutely. But the real problem is it's still generating the false positives. And anytime you outsource something, to some level, you're losing a bit of control and there lies more risk. So, you know, it's always a balancing act. So you get to a point, and by the way, as the former head of Actimize, all my customers, all they wanted was figure out how to get these false positives down, figure out how to get these false positives down. That's the biggest proposition in the market today. And if you can do it, you know, the world is your oyster. How much did clients tend to come to you to say, give us an idea of how to do this versus coming with their own ideas of here are three ways we think we can lower false positives or, so, or kind of that more collaborative approach. Well, and this is not unique to AML, but uh, banks have, especially large ones, enormous staffs and budgets, and they hire data scientists and they can do a lot, you know, time and money, you can do almost everything. So in some large institutions, they would actually go out and hire their own staffs and create data science teams and create their own models to figure out how to solve this problem. The banks though are banks and typically you wanna to stay to your core competency, which is money and lending and that kind of thing and not necessarily technology. So this is the old build or buy concept and it always comes around where they could do it initially but where they come to realize is that evolving and keeping current is very hard to do. So basically working with vendors such as Actimize, Tukataki and others, these are the experts. So you get the kind of collective genius of this organization works with many organizations as opposed to just what we've done as an individual institution. And also, as we talked about, if you do something on your own, the regulatory antenna go up. And they start saying, well, wait a minute, you, what are you doing? Because I'm more familiar with the more commercially available solutions. So again, a lot of moving parts on all this. So Actimize, I mean, that's a huge player in the industry. A lot of people know of Actimize. A lot, I know a lot of my clients use Actimize. And you mentioned there's some risk in being the only bank to, you know, to try a new method or to try a new transaction monitoring system. How did you kind of get in the door? How specialized were you? Because with Actimize, there's a fair amount of specialization that you can use. Yeah, and uh, you know, I wanna be very respectful of Actimize, uh, but Actimize has been around over 20 years and I will give you kind of an analogy uh, and it also dates me, but Check processing was usually, you know, all about the speed at which you can take a check and move it through a sorter. That's, that was the goal. You, you wanted to clear the check as fast as you can and get the float. So every bank was working on faster, faster checks. But it gets to the point where you just cannot move paper through a machine any faster than X. And to be better, you have to pivot or have a paradigm shift. And that's where the digital concept of checks today come in. It's a completely different approach. So similar to finding anomalous behavior, 
rules or even profiles where you kind of take averages and look for deviations, at some point, you just can't squeeze too much out of it. It just gets to a diminishing return. You have to acknowledge it's time to reset the platform. So Tukataki, for example, you know, had the advantage. Sometimes when you come in later in a market, you're the new people on the block, you can see it in a different way and build from scratch a true machine learning platform. Now, again, being respectful, Actimize acknowledges this, and I'm sure they are working very aggressively to do something in this area. But the point I'm making is at some point, the technology has to be replaced. And the right. only thing that does it today is machine learning. So that's very different than the rules and profiling that's, that's it, mostly in the market today. So let's turn to Abhishek and uh, you've been patiently waiting. Um, to, so when any vendor comes in, I said you, to this to you guys in the, in the preview, any vendor comes in and they say, hey, we can, we can solve X problem. I say, great, don't show me a presentation. Show me actually what you can do. And in following, you know, Tukataki, you know, over the past, you know, year or so, walk us through not just the problem, actually skip the problem because Joe's done a nice job explaining it. How are you guys using the technology, helping DFS part 504 that says we want automated surveillance, Bank of Israel Directive 411, the EU anti-money laundering directive number six, probably, you know, an infinite number of others that are saying, stop being so manual, stop using yesterday's technology. And then how do we actually get to, you know, the, the signal and, you know, and really start, uh, you know, getting away from the noise. Right. Um, so I think um, the problem should be broken up into two parts, right? One is essentially the detection. And then once you detect, then how do you sort of manage? Um, here, I think um, we need new technologies like AI and machine learning to come in and deliver results across both ends of the spectrum. So the first aspect is detection. How do you make the detection better so that the alerts that gets generated are much more sharper than what it is currently done? And how do you make that better? Um, one of the ways which um, regulators and overall ecosystem is talking about is really understanding um, the scenarios which you need to monitor to generate those alerts. Because these bad actors, the modus operandi across the board is very similar. Suppose you have a mule activity and the mule activity says that if you have smaller amount of transactions in multiple ways, and then they all flow to one counterparty, then that's a problem. Now, you can't create rules around mule activity because the only thing that you create is as Joe pointed out, a broader net that throw alerts for anybody who has 10,000, which means that dozens and dozens of the transactions will actually trigger and you really don't know whether it's a mule activity or not. So having some sort of an intelligence which is able to make this detection better is the first part of the process. So as Tukitaki, um, our concept of detection is through a concept called as federated learning where we sort of learn from the industry, from the ecosystem, and then sort of percolate that learning in each individual banks that we go in. So for instance, I will go to a financial institution, say, hey, by the way, these are the new patterns that are coming up. 
if you download these patterns, you would be able to generate much more sharper alerts using the concept of AI and machine learning and a concept called as a federated learning. Once you generate alert and you have a bigger net, uh, you still needs to understand whether those alerts are true alerts or false alerts. Here, a concept, a subset of AI uh, comes in, which we call as machine learning, where historically we understand from the analysts, how did they say this is a good alert and this is a false alert or is a low value alert. The machine learning intelligence looks at historical data, automatically learns what these analysts would have done and then builds an algorithm out of it. How do you, so, how do you, so let's say, um, for example, like a zero balance account on its face in a, in an any money laundering type typology, money in, money out, money in, money out is a red flag. So if, if I didn't have a human looking at that and understand that a zero balance account is meant to be zero. And so the money comes in and then is supposed to go out to pay bills, to pay, you know, carpenters or whatever the, the human understands that. How do you bridge from what uh, Paul Caulfield, the FIU investigator does to the machine that then can pick up the, to, can take the baton? How do you, how do you bridge the gap firstly? Got it. So I think again, right. If, if you take a step back, there are two elements. One is detection. Um, the way machine learning or artificial intelligence works is that it tries to understand historically what's a normal behavior. So for instance, in your zero balance account, if I'm a normal retail customer, I would probably have a, like a money coming in and going out, meaning beginning of the month, there would be a lot more balance. End of the month, there will be less balance, right? And then there is a pattern around it. Now, if you are a customer who is sort of doing mule activities or any sort of activities, you'll probably have like the, the zero balance account sort of skewed at certain uh, points in the month or the ratios of incoming and outgoing would be skewed at certain seasonality of the year. So what's happening is that in that aspect, when a normal and a not so normal behavior is detected, if a new customer comes in who has a not so normal behavior, even though there is no human analyst, they will say, hey, by the way, 90% of I, my retail customer has a flow in flow out ratio of almost one at the end of the month. But these set of guys has a different flow in flow out ratios, which is completely not so normal. That's how you detect those cases. And once you agree, meaning the analyst says, Hey, I agree to this. The machine learning engine again, takes over, learns it. And next time your alerts gets generated, it says, Hey, by the way, this is a true alert. And this is a false alert. That's yeah. how we work through the system. So you, you, I don't know if you guys use the term, but we use the term good guy rules. And this is all like, this is the human way that we do. It's not even machine, machine learning. So the ZBA account example, it would be, okay, we don't want to see this again. And what we do is we create a rule. And, and what the problem is, then you're in rules management, uh, which, where you could create 10,000 good guy rules. And when, when do they run stale? For example, that ZBA account example well, what if they started to do something that was untoward or that was something illicit? 
how are you able to cut the false positives down? Is there a percentage that you're seeing uh, generally? Um, you know, how, how does it generally operate? One of the things I'd like the audience to know is putting in an AML operation is not trivial. It, it's work and it's complex. And is the old expression, it's, it all starts with data. So when we go into an operation, everybody has something, you have to have it. So the, this is not a throw it all out and start over again. That's just not a winning proposition. So one of the real kind of clever things that we've come through is keep your infrastructure. The infrastructure is the existing data you have today that feeds your systems. We'll take that in the same format it exists today. In addition to the underlying data that you're feeding your engines, you have investigators who are working alerts all the time will take all of their activity from the case management system, which gives you a, a feel for what the human being was doing in each alert. And then instead of the alerts that are going directly to the investigators today, send them to, in this case, the Tukataki engine. So we're getting the alerts right out of the existing system. It's also been trained those models by the underlying data, as well as the investigator activity. And then what it does, so think about it as, as a bigger way of processing the alerts before you give it to a person. It will say, you know, of all of these thousand alerts, 60% of these are over here in false positives. They are not really in any way true positive. These are your high positive ones. So all of a sudden you take the workload and you completely break it down, allowing your staff to focus on the high priority ones first, and then you hibernate your other ones. And then you go through some sampling just to make sure and keep the regulators happy that the machine learning model is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And the other aspect that's probably worth mentioning to the audience is the real challenge with machine learning is anytime a person made a decision, you can figure out what they did. You ask them, why did you make this decision? But when the machine makes the, a decision to say yes, true positive, false positive, the immediately the antenna go up again and say, okay, why? So you need a level of transparency and explainability that you can drill into when you need to with your regulators and explain here's what's going on underneath the, the waterline. And that's the, the tricky part because a lot of people can make decisions, but it's a black box. So you really need to have that openness and transparency from an operational point of view to transition. So my, the whole point of my commentary here is, it's an easy way to transition from your legacy technology into an advanced machine learning technology, and then over time completely displace the legacy technology from a business point of view. If a regulator were to come in right now to uh, most financial institutions, they would be able to say, show me your above the below, below the line testing, show me the, the auto close, they, they'd be able to test. In the, the current, the, the state that you're laying out with the machine learning, what, what do they see that, that gives them comfort? What are, what's the, the tangible, the, the, the algorithm? How do you get them comfortable given that this is so technology uh, dependent? Um, you know, as, as Joe mentioned, right? You know, we call ourselves as a glass box rather than a black box uh, because you can really see, see what's inside and it's very transparent. So when regulators come in and the, the questions that they ask is, you know, how do you sort of understand whether an alert is a true alert or a false alert? There are four factors. One, understanding the customer, understanding the type of transactions and do they sort of align to the KYC profile that they have given? Number three, 
is is there any sort of transactions which is abnormal or anomalous and number 4 were there any past alerts that has triggered so these are the four broad views that regulators look at it when tukitaki talks about transparency and sort of making it all clear we bring together those factors in our prediction or we exactly tell you that hey by the way these are the customer parameters which we believe or the engine believes resulted in that decisioning and these are the anomalies that we are seeing that's one number two these are transactions that has been triggering and this is anomalous to a normal behavior or a person similar to this number 3 these are alerts that gets generated and hence we believe when you add up all together it becomes a risky transaction or a risky alert and this is the reason you should be filing or taking an action so we break it up in a regulatory understandable format rather than being very data sciencey which is like hey these are features and these are input parameters which might not mean much to both the regulators and the compliance team and that's what we call ourselves as a contextual or a business explainability which is why we call call ourselves as a glass box approach towards solving that problem do you find that because you kind of have this transparent approach that that's successful do you have trouble kind of explaining it even to clients or so let me take that one uh, where we are in the market because of all the problems over the years is the regulatory regulatory bodies plural are now more supportive than ever than the use of technology so there's a general theme and they're moving in that direction which is of course good uh they'll never tell you exactly what you're supposed to do they'll just kind of guide you in some theme and say you should be looking at this now with that said you know machine learning is a technology it's it's how you fit for purpose any kind of technology and one of the things i think if you took a close look at tukagi you see i call it singlish so first it's english and that makes it a whole lot easier than if you have to be a data scientist and helping the regulatory person understand ah i get it it's just like talking to a human now except you're laying it out in in a format that i could read so to answer your question is we're in a transition and it's moving and you know it's just not if it's when and more and more and more driven by all the inefficiencies you'll see regulatory people eventually being much more sophisticated in the understanding of machine learning either where i get comfort is model risk management it's been around for i think it was 2003 was the first fil that came out of the fdic that said okay if you're going to rely on models then what are you doing to test them to go back on an annual basis if they're high risk you know more uh, less frequently if they're lower risk so these are these are models that we're relying on and so um as we and maybe this is where you know Joe you were talking about you know JP Morgan trying to really you know crunch on uh the technology because they don't want to have this glut of uh human capital and you're always going to need some eyes managing and tending the store but i think there's going to be and maybe this is where you know you and kind of um Abishek and kind of lead us is what's the future state that doesn't sound too far away what's that balance of uh the types of people that you see working within a compliance ecosystem working with systems such as this the model risk management kind of uh controls around it so it's not just the worst thing that you can do in a model is rely on it 
period. Just rely on it. What you have to do is you've got to kind of loop back and kind of make sure that it's running as intended, right? So what's your what's your future state ecosystem of, of compliance personnel as well as technology? Yeah. Let me start out a shake and then you can add a lot more depth in terms of the technology. But this is actually one of my personal, uh, I guess, hot buttons because I've been in the business for many, many years and I've got this vision that one day it's a lights out operation. You know, you'll, you'll never need a person to do it. It completely gets automated. Now, you know, that's nice to aspire to, but the reality is you will need a smaller number of people. But the key, and again, I'll go back to my business theme. Today, you have to have highly trained individuals working in this operation. You, from understanding the models, data scientists, even the investigators have to be well-trained and very experienced. All that adds up to is cost. Technology eventually can dumb it down can take all the complexity out, make some of the key decisions, but then serve it up in a way that I'll say mere mortals can understand, where you can hire more business-related people. So to answer your question, from a business perspective, the technology is gonna shift it so it gets away from the data scientists and the analytics and more into a business person that you're hiring, which will have more of a concept of why we're doing these things and not trying to figure out what was going on which is a huge shift from where we are today. There's a lot of technology and a lot of technical people involved in these operations. Just to add on to Joe, right? There are two, three sort of broad points that we see. Um, number one is, um, you know, in the model governance space, um, there's a lot of research, or a lot of trends coming up where um, the documentation element of model governance is being automated. Um, uh, purely because at the end of the day, right, there are these sort of fixed set of rules that you need to do documents and narration generation in SARS and documentation is a big area of focus. And I think OCC also had a lot of pilots and innovation projects on automation of that. So that's a big trend coming up in the industry. How do you sort of automate the narration process of model development and SAR development and stuff like that? So that's one element. The second element, as Joe pointed out, is model which are built, it's not like constant in one time, it's also growing. So having mechanisms to continuously look at data and grow is a big part of success, whether machine learning or any model will succeed. To give you some examples, during COVID crisis, all models went for a toss and our system because of Champion Challenger kept on building and then that kept the efficacy constant, right? So that's second element. The third element that we now look at it is that, you know, from a pure people's point of view, um, we would see much more sort of tech educated compliance team members uh, who would be part of the workforce in the next two, four years, because the guys who are now, you know, sort of team members in the tech companies like Chime and you know, all these companies, they're much more tech oriented. And then when they sort of grow up in their you know, career progression, then they come to banks, we will see much more amalgamation of tech and compliance coming together than what it is today. Uh, so I, that's how we see the workforce also sort of evolving along the way. I, I, your last point, I've said to my lawyer friends, if you don't have a computer scientist working in your law firm, Seriously, if you when you think about like smart contracts and you know where we're going with block blockchain technology, I agree with you that we're going to have more uh, 
uh, data scientists, model risk managers, really people who understand how the, how the engine works. What's important for me and, and Zila in this is demystifying this space. Um, and I'm not sure if I said it to Joe or to an earlier uh, guest. I want my mom to listen to this and say, I understand the problem, the solution Maybe I get a little bit, but I, I now really do understand, you know, bigger picture. And so, you know, our students understand it. The people who want to get, you know, a little bit wonky get it. And obviously the practitioner, practitioners are get it. And then I think you had said, you know, the evangelization of this stuff, the demystifying, you know, the, the regulators can say 314B all they want. And, you know, here it is near 20 years old. But all right, great. Well, how are we gonna how are we actually gonna do it in a way that 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 makes sense? And you know, all these transactional surveillance requirements. Well, great, but we're we're waste we are wasting our time um, reviewing so many uh, false positives because and and this is what's so frustrating. More often than not, if you think about the millions, billions, and maybe trillions of transactions that are occurring through credit cards, through wire transfers, through peer-to-peer -peer, through anything, that's all legit stuff. And we're trying to find the signal. And what I like about what you guys are doing is you guys are really trying to use the existing technologies, but supplement them or, or complement them with machines, with algorithms that are saying, okay, you, you can do it better and you're not you know, alone, uh, you know, just the humans. As we've mentioned, um, our, our, we had an earlier episode on information sharing. So we've talked a little bit about the topic of how important it is that financial institutions share information with each other, how that can be useful, not only for financial institutions, but the development of the industry and for regulators and meeting their goals of kind of fighting financial crimes. Um, you, we've been talking about false positives for transaction monitoring. As we all know, eventually, as Joe kind of highlighted, many of those alerts will end up being filed as suspicious activity reports with the government. That process, SARS are highly confidential, regulators are very interested in keeping that confidential, and as a result, I think most institutions have been very private and held very close to the vest, their transaction monitoring, their data, the SARS themselves, obviously, since they have a legal obligation to keep those confidential, but um, Abhishek, you've mentioned um, to us in the past that you think information sharing in this space actually would have greater benefits. And I know that that frankly doesn't seem to be something that's happening, probably for fear of the baton of a you know, regulator coming down with some enforcement action for sharing too much. But what do you think are some of the benefits of sharing and where that can lead us? Absolutely. I think as long as we can you know, decouple data and insights, then sharing becomes more pervasive than what it is today. We don't need to share um, the names of people or customer information because the way bad actors work, the modus operandi can be shared. So when we learn from one bank, the modus operandi of false alert or true alert, that modus operandi can be shared and what it is today. And that's what we want to bring into the system because that would really create a very powerful ecosystem of fighting financial crime and reducing false alerts. And that's how we in Tukitaki is fighting that battle. Well, guys, look, we very much appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we look forward to following Tukitaki. And uh, just as a pr practitioner, I also uh, very much uh, 
look forward to seeing the, the, the solutions coming more online in the United States. So thanks for joining us and we'll, we'll see you soon.